From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Emily Ernson. This is your news for Friday, December 1st. The Audubon Society is gearing up for its annual Christmas bird count, which starts on December 14th. Zach Hutchinson is the community science coordinator with the Audubon Rockies, which covers Colorado, Utah, and Wyoming. He says this will be the 124th year the count has taken place. It started out as, what, 20 participants back in 1900, and now you're talking tens of thousands of people that go out in this time span and join their local community members and count birds. This is the longest-running citizen science project in the country, and Hutchinson says this type of data gathering is invaluable. It helps scientists fill in gaps in data by saying, hey, here's our problem. We need to gather this information about this species. We'll provide the training. We'll show you how to do it. We'll show you how to collect this information. Um, We'll train you to the best abilities that we can so that you feel fully prepared. And then you can go out and do it on your own and send us that data. And then we are getting more data than we could if it were just, you know, this small group of us trying to collect it because you just can't cover that much ground. Birdwatchers in the Rocky Mountains will be keeping an eye out for pinion jays, whose population has declined by an estimated 80% in the last 50 years. Hutchinson says this is largely because of habitat loss. The pinion jay depends upon that arid pinion juniper type habitat where pinion pine uh, starts to phase out. It's more of juniper or ponderosa type habitat. So you'll find that throughout western Wyoming and then you get into the pinion as you go into western Colorado. That habitat is being gravely impacted by a variety of human factors. The bird count will run through January 5th. To find one near you, go to audubon.org. Officers with the Utah Division of Wildlife Resources are investigating several cases of animal wasting across Utah. Hunters are obligated to take a certain percentage of animals they kill, and if they leave too much of the animal behind, they can be fined. Anna Johnson with Utah Public Radio has more. Officer Wyatt Meekum with the DWR investigates wasting incidents. He says when hunters kill an animal and leave behind the majority of it, they are wasting that animal. If you kill a big game animal, you need to take the forequarters, which is the front legs, the hind legs, the back straps, and the tenderloins, for it to not be a wasting issue. If you kill an animal and fail to take the meat, then we consider it a waste. Meekum says using the meat of animals he hunts is an important part of hunting. As a sportsman, a hunter myself, you know, we're harvesting these animals for food, not to just kill them. He says if hunters make a mistake and end up killing the wrong animal, the DWR will work with them to find a solution. People make mistakes and we realize that they call us, we can work it out with them. But I think a lot of the times these people just leave the animal and and go, you know, instead of reporting the violation to us. The DWR says allowing protected wildlife to be wasted can result in a Class B misdemeanor. If people will, you know, call and let us know they made a mistake, we are definitely lenient. And if we know about it, then, you know, we're not going to spend hours and hours on a case that could have been resolved much easier. Meekum says if you have any information about animals being wasted, to reach out to investigators with the DWR. With Utah Public Radio, I'm Anna Johnson. On Tuesday, New Mexico legislators offered sharp criticism of the state governor's response to the missing and murdered indigenous relatives crisis. 
Clark Adamitis of KSUT and KSJD has this report. Critics have been demanding more action from Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham for months. In October, the governor's office quietly dissolved a state task force comprised of experts and advocates. New Mexico's Secretary of Indian Affairs, James Mountain, spoke to the Legislative Indian Affairs Committee. His announcement was intended to address concerns about state inaction on missing and murdered indigenous relatives. We will be establishing an advisory council um, to uh, assist and lead uh, in the oversight of the work that is already continuing in response to the state response plan uh, that was uh, led and put together amazingly by the task force. But Mountain's remarks served only to inflame critics on the committee. It seems like we're starting from scratch. State Representative Patricia Roybal Caballero is a member of the Guadalupe Pueblo. At the hearing, she said the task force had offered indigenous family members much-needed support when a relative goes missing. The new advisory council, she said, is a step backwards. I absolutely disagree with an advisory council being placed within a state department. I feel like we're misplacing the urgency, the seriousness of our family members. We're placing them on on a shelf. Before it was dissolved, the 30-member task force included tribal officials, legal experts, as well as federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies. At yesterday's hearing, Secretary James Mountain offered few details on how the new advisory council will operate. For KSUT and KSJD, I'm Clark Adamitis. An invasive snail was recently discovered in the largest alpine lake in California, and these tiny critters could cause big problems for the area's ecosystem and economy. The Mountain West News Bureau's Caleb Radel tagged along with researchers working to monitor and control the spread. It's a cool fall evening on Lake Tahoe. Sudeep Chandra is standing at the back of a small boat anchored in the south end of the clear blue lake. He's holding a device called a dredge. It looks like a large metal clamshell. We're basically gonna drop this in the water. The dredge will sink, snap shut, and scoop up a sample of the lake bed. A few seconds later, the researcher from the University of Nevada, Reno, reels in the device and cracks it open. We first see, of course, invasive Asian clams. These things can live two to four years old and they can reproduce uh, hundreds of thousands to millions of little villagers. Asian clams are an invasive species that showed up in Tahoe more than 20 years ago. They give off nitrogen and phosphorus that helps algae grow and that degrades water quality. Chandra is looking for a different invader discovered recently, the New Zealand mud snail. These critters are especially tiny. You can think about them being the size of the tip of your fingernail. But their invasion footprint can expand fast. That's because these mud snails multiply by cloning themselves. And in any given lake or river, we might see 95% of the population is all the same clone. That allows them to colonize places pretty quickly and crowd out native species and eat up insects fish rely on for food. This can threaten Tahoe's native ecosystem, which is highly protected 
and an important economic driver in northern Nevada and California. These scenic waters and mountains draw people from all around the world for boating, fishing, skiing, and Instagramming. The risk of new invasive animals and plants taking hold is increasing around Tahoe and the entire world. Andrew Kramer is a biologist at the University of South Florida. He says the rise in global trade and travel is a big reason. Another is climate change. As places get warmer, there's going to be a larger pool of species that are potentially able to survive there. Kramer co-authored a study on the economic impacts of invasive species in America. The cost? About $22 billion per year. They can affect industries, damage infrastructure, and raise wildfire risks. And he says the West is... The most affected region. And that's, you know, some combination of agriculture and forestry and the high, you know, the high value that that people put on the, the natural resources out there. The New Zealand mud snail is among the thousands of invasive species impacting waters and lands in the West. They range from feral swine to cheatgrass. Another is the quagga mussel, a shellfish recently found in Idaho's Snake River. We had biologists on the river within uh, really 24 hours of receiving that information. Nick Zerflu is with the Idaho State Department of Agriculture. He says quagga mussels can clog water pipes used for tap water, farming, and the state's main electricity source, hydropower. And so every straw coming out of the river, every user is impacted. Idaho officials recently spent $3 million to kill the invasive species. They treated a section of the Snake River with a chemical that's hazardous to mussels. But they won't know if the mussels have been wiped out until waters are sampled next spring. Back at Lake Tahoe, Chandra says they're figuring out how much the invasion has spread and how to respond. Another important question we need to ask ourselves now that we're infected at Lake Tahoe is what we can do to prevent the spread to other water bodies. He says a lot of that will depend on the locals and visitors. Invasive species can move from one water body to another by everything from boats to paddle boards to fishing gear. That's why it's important, he adds, to clean, drain, and dry your equipment. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Caleb Radel. And now the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. The boat ramp for what used to be the takeout for Cataract Canyon has been out of commission for years as water levels have receded at Lake Powell. And the next functioning boat ramp is over 50 miles away. I spoke with Doug McMurdo of the Times Independent about how this is affecting river guiding businesses in Moab. The big story this week uh, in the Times Independent is the uh, Cataract Canyon boat boat ramp, uh, the height boat ramp when you go into uh, uh, Lake Powell, uh, North Wash boat ramp, if you will. It doesn't exist, and there's nowhere to take out, and that's uh, got big, big problems for local river runners um, who uh, um, take people down ca- through Cataract Canyon. Yeah, uh, so- getting out at height has always been um, traditionally what it is, and that's not going to happen because um, the water's so low. They are working on uh, replacing it, but that's like uh, two years away, 2026, and that's a situation that uh, local river runners are are saying is uh, unacceptable. Yeah, so this boat ramp has been unusable because the water levels have been so low, and this has been going on for years, Yeah, the the height takeout, really, it doesn't even exist. The reason why it is unacceptable is the next takeout is 
50 miles downstream. And that would add another day to every trip and uh, another day's expenses to every customer. So mm-hmm. Jason Taylor, the operations manager for the Western River Expeditions, mm-hmm. he said that it was unacceptable um, and he's not the only one. National Recreation side, the federal government side, um, they said that they're working as fast as they can. Um, but the problem is that they've never really treated Lake Powell and all of the uh, washes and takeouts as if a river was actually flowing into it. They never really addressed, there's a river flowing into the lake, what do we do? And that's one of the reasons that uh, local outfitters are, are upset. But I think what's going to happen, um, people are either going to survive this or they're not. You know, People might be willing to pay an extra day and float another 50 miles uh, through the lake at that point. So a new plan was announced that said that it'll be years until this boat ramp is completed? Yeah, 2026. Okay, and then who announced that plan? Who's responsible uh, for that it? That was uh, Kearns from um, the uh, National Park Service. Okay, so it's National work. Park Service yeah. responsibility to fix this ramp? Yes, Okay, it is. And, um, you know, they got, they're doing what they can, and it's just another another consequence of this drought mm-hmm. and shrinking water levels at the, at the lake. Did but, they say why it's going to take so long to fix the ramp? Uh, basically, there's a, uh, there's a whole lot of dredging to be done. There's a whole lot of, um, they have to build these floating piers and just mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff. And I'm sure because it's the federal government, there's probably a long NEPA process and uh, a series of uh, approvals that they're going to have to get. A lot of it's going to be red tape, I'm sure. Okay. Um, and then how far away is the boat ramp from the water currently, or the previous boat ramp? Uh, it's dry. It's on dry land. Right. So, but like how far away is the, oh, like the probably, water? Oh, uh, probably 50 feet. Okay. Jason uh, Taylor, you know, his, his it's in the headline, but uh, he says that if they don't do something before 2026, it will, uh, quote, crush the whole uh Cataract Canyon River running. Mm, he thinks trip. that people will be less willing to go on these trips because it will require maybe an extra day of flat water. Yeah, an extra day of flat water with the extra expense. Um, and flat water is fun, but it's not the rapids. And you do Cataract Canyon for the excitement mm. um, and, and the sightseeing, I'm sure. But you're, we are there for the for the rapids. Okay. All right. Was there anything else you wanted to mention about that? I think that was pretty thorough. Yeah, I think that's okay. Yeah. So, what else happened this week that you wanted to talk about? Um, Sophia Fisher, as everybody knows, she's on sabbatical until January, but she uh, she's a hard worker and she didn't leave without uh, filing this story from the airport. I believe in Denver. She's such a pro, but um, she's talking about a um, climb Moab. It's a, a new climbing gym. Or yeah, I guess the first of its kind climbing gym uh-huh. uh, coming to um, Moab. They're in the process of creating a climbing gym with all kinds of uh, different scenarios for climbers, and it's not going to be just for professional climbers. It's going to be for people, you know, for fun, uh, for people who would like to climb but don't know how and would like to get, you know, some education before they go out and, and do the real thing. This climbing gym is in the works. Has construction started? Um, they initially, it was going to be in January, I think, or they were planning on January, but now um, they kind of hedged that with uh, saying, you know, early in 2020. A January opening? or Yeah, January okay. opening was what they were planning, but I think it might be February or even March. Okay. Um, you know how it is. It's supply chain issues are still messing with people. Is there anything else you can tell us about the gym? Like, will it be a membership program? 
it's going to be a typical gym. You can you can join, but they're going to have classes and hopefully um, you know instructors and students and just all kinds of different scenarios on how to climb crack, how to free, uh, free climb, how to climb with assistant, how to belay, mm-hmm. all those important things that go into climbing. Cool. So maybe a good activity for all the climbers who don't want to go out in the winter when it's yeah, too cold. Yeah, and, and all the people who aren't climbers but just want to see what it feels like. Yeah. I think that would be cool. Great. What else is in the paper this week? Well, I think our third story that we're going to talk about today is uh, something that it's a new movement. It's uh, gaining uh, in popularity throughout the country, and it's in Moab, and it's called Green Burials. Yeah. And it's um, uh, for people who don't want to have a traditional uh, burial, and they don't want to get cremated, um, and they can be... uh, cost-effective and environmentally sound. Basically, um, you don't get embalmed. You know, none of that stuff happens um, that typically happens as long as the body can stay refrigerated. That's that's the law. So they can put it in a, essentially a cardboard box, biodegradable, uh, bury them at six feet like they, they do traditionally. And um, you, you go back to uh, ashes to ashes a lot quicker than you would um, in a box or a vault or after, you know, you would, you would um, go back to nature a lot quicker. Mm-hmm. And it's, it seems like a pretty cool way to, yeah. to be put to rest. Yeah, so it's my understanding that Moab is one of pretty few cemeteries that have permission to do these kind of environmentally friendly burials. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, yeah. so how, how rare is this? It's... It's rare, but it's growing in popularity. I think it's a question of as soon as word gets out, people have something else to ponder on on how they they want to leave this world. And I think a a lot of it, um, not leave the world, (laughs) how they want to be put to rest. Uh Um, It would still give people time, you know, the chance to come and visit them, you know. Um, It's just one more option, and I think it's economical, and I think it's environmentally friendly yeah yeah so the idea is that you don't have to be put into a casket that you know maybe never biodegrades or biodegrades very slowly and what are some of the other differences between a traditional burial and this type of burial? I, I think the the biggest thing is the embalming you know that's pretty invasive even though it's corpse it's it's still an invasive procedure and um uh, it, 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 it keeps the body preserved and you really now that we have refrigeration we don't really need to be embalmed if we can keep the bodies cold. So did you talk to anyone? Is this like this, someone at the cemetery decided to make this change? Or? Robert Buckingham. The, okay. Uh, he's, he's the head of um, mm-hmm. the, the cemeteries uh, here in Grand County, and uh, he's a big proponent of it. Um, but Robert's always, he's one of those guys. He's always looking to uh, improve uh, services. Uh, I did a, an interview with him a couple years ago where people who got cremated can still have a little box um, at the cemetery for loved ones to come and um, uh, and visit and, mm. and do those things. Yeah. So he's he's been pretty innovative, and he's got a hard-working crew over there. So did uh, Robert say why he wanted to initiate this? Just to get the word out. Um, or, yeah. or why he wanted to, you know, make this change at the cemetery and allow for these types of burials? He's a big proponent of it. Okay. It's environmentally sound. Yeah. Uh, I think environmentally more than anything mm. is, is something. Yeah. And, you know... Um, when you're, when you're running cemeteries that have been around for decades, space always becomes a real big concern. So if you can uh, get these plots, and they're, they're still going to take up real estate, but I don't think they're going to take up as much real estate as a traditional burial will, because eventually mm-hmm. they're going to... Yeah. You know, Is the idea that you can like re- 
rebury eventually? That has not come up, and okay. I don't even want to touch yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So is this new, like people, this is a new service now that people can have? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, and I think Merle um, at uh, Spanish Valley Mortuary is also a big proponent of it. Okay, so. right. So this is, is this just at the cemetery that's sort of near San Flats? Yes. Okay. And have people like been taking advantage of this yet? Have people been requesting this so far? Um, one thing he said, and it was towards the end of the story that Gwen did, that um, it was what he, he witnessed um, a service a green burial service and because it's a cardboard box um uh, you know young people who knew the the decedent uh, they drew uh, messages on the on the box and everything and um uh, robert said it was uh, one of the most amazing things that that he'd ever seen and and he also says you know like i said earlier he just wants to provide uh, another service to the community mm-hmm. is this more affordable than a typical burial as well absolutely yeah absolutely mm-hmm. a lot more affordable doug mcmurdo editor at the times independent find more stories at moabtimes.com one of moab's local authors has published her fourth book in a series about merlin a mythical figure from the king arthur legend and what he would do if he came to moab I spoke with Allison Harford of the Moab Sun News about the book. We have a lot of local authors in Moab, but one of them is this woman named Carol Say, and she has been working on this book series that she's calling Merlin in Moab. Um, she's been writing it since 2013, and the fourth book in the series just came out. Nice. What's the premise of the book? Yeah, so it's called The Winds of Change, um, and it's continuing the plot that was kind of built up in the first three books. So her idea is that Merlin, um, the like old wizard who helped King Arthur, um, he's reborn kind of, or he finds himself suddenly in 21st century Moab. Um, and so he has to kind of figure out first where he is. And then also um, he still has this mission to like better Avalon. Um, so there are a lot of like elements of the old legends in these books, but it's also kind of Merlin like figuring out where he is and what Moab is like. Um, so by the fourth book, he has this 21st century wife and they've had a couple kids Um and then King Arthur of Camelot is reborn as Merlin's son. Um, and because of magic that Merlin is doing, King Arthur is going to grow into adulthood in five years. And the book blurb says that he'll be ready to complete the goal he failed to achieve in the fifth century. Um, but obviously there are all these twists and turns and Merlin's ancient nemesis, who he's been fighting for the first three books, is back um, and tries to, like, stop King Arthur from completing this goal. So mm. there's a lot going on. Um, but <laughs> have you read, books, have you read them? I have not read them. Um, but they're kind of, they're somewhat popular. Um, the book was ranked number 38 of the top 100 bestsellers in Arthurian fantasy on Amazon when it came out. Mm. Um, yeah. And so these are like high fantasy. There's some romance elements too. And they're um, big for fans of Merlin, obviously. Cool. Yeah. Are they available at the library? Um, I actually don't think they're available at the library, but they're on Amazon. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Um, So yeah, the books are available on Amazon, but there will also be this um, celebration of the book at the library on December 6th. Will the author speak there? Yeah. So Carol will be there um, speaking and she'll read a little bit from the book and kind of talk about everything that came together to allow her to write them. Cool. 
Is it a young adult novel? Yeah, it's um, it's for adults. Okay. Um, but you don't need to know anything about Merlin or the old legends to be able to understand these books. Um, they're pretty well researched because Carol has made a lot of trips to like Great Britain and Wales and Scotland. Um, and she's also descended from King James V of Scotland, who ruled mm. from 1513 to 1542. So they're pretty well researched. Okay, <laughs> great. <laughs> All right. What else happened this week that you want to tell us about? The president of Utah State University named Elizabeth Cantwell was in Moab recently. Um, she's been traveling around to different campuses doing these listening sessions to kind of redefine the mission of USU. So when she was in Moab, she chatted with me about her vision for the local campus, um, which this year saw record enrollment rates. And also, it's important to note that Utah or that USU is a land grant university, um, which means it receives federal support. And those benefits come through this act that said that um, federal support will be granted to universities that teach agriculture, military tactics, and the mechanic arts, as well as classical studies, so that mm -hmm. members of the working class could obtain practical education. Okay. Um, so that's part of the mission of the Moab campus. They have to sort of include that in their curriculum. Right, exactly. So land-grant universities are always supposed to be, like, for the working class primarily. Mm -hmm. um, are there military classes at the USU Moab? No, campus? so that's okay. kind of an outdated, um, that's like the original language of this act. And since then, land-grant universities have kind of like redefined themselves, but they're still largely based in agriculture and mechanic arts. Okay. But yeah, so I found that really interesting. And um, I think a big thing that we talked about was you know, if they're looking at building any new campuses in the state at this point, um, which they're not. But Elizabeth Cantwell said um, she's really trying to refocus a lot of campuses on, like, the this idea of the fourth industrial revolution. So, like, AI and autonomy and advanced manufacturing and, like, how all of those things are going to influence the life that we live and especially how all those things are going to influence, like, something like the welding certificate that people take um, in Moab or like nursing and things like that. Mm -hmm. And she said that USU can be a really core part of thinking about that future and, um, how we like define those conversations across the state. Mm. Was there any, anything specific about the Moab campus that she wants to definitely like see in the future? Yeah. Um, so we talked a lot about like how, the Moab campus is going to grow because I think growth is kind of a tricky subject in Moab sometimes where um, we do want to see growth in this town and like more jobs for locals um, and more housing, obviously. And I think universities can do really well to supply that. Um, but also, Cantwell was saying that she wants to make sure that people who go to school in Moab can also get hired here. Like, it's really important to her, especially for the Moab campus, that um, people who get educated here can stay in the region and, like, benefit the region. And that's a big thing of land-grant universities, too, is, like, we're getting this federal funding to train working-class people to have um, kind of, like, more advanced jobs. So we want to see that eventually benefit the local economy mm -hmm. um yeah and she's really so she's pretty new she started um in August and so she's kind of like still thinking in the bigger picture 
especially for the Moab campus. Um, but another thing that she's trying to do is like bring a lot of research back to the Moab campus and like bring research into the region and not just like jobs in the tourism and hospitality industries. Mm. Okay, cool. Um, and then did you also want to talk about the choir? Yeah, so we also wrote a little piece on Valley Voices, which is this historic women's choir, um, and they will be performing again at the Holiday Craft Fair at the Mark this weekend. Nice. Singing Christmas carols? What will they be singing? Yeah, so they'll be singing like Christmas carols. Um, they are a barbershop and acapella choir, so it'll be like no instruments involved in their singing. Um, They've been an official organization since like the 1970s and they actually used to do a lot of competitions and so their membership has like ebbed and flowed since then Um, but I think it's really cool that they're still around and um, so they're going to perform at the mark and then they're also trying to kind of like revamp their holiday performances so they're also going to do a couple performances at Red Cliffs this holiday season. Allison Harford, reporter with the Moab Sun News. Find more stories at moabsunnews.com. That's it for the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. You can find the pieces that were mentioned today in the show notes on our website, kzmu.org, or wherever you listen to the KZMU News podcast. As always, thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU, community-powered radio.